0: In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories.
1: Welcome to episode 13 of the Paw & Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Lapchuk, and Peter Sankoff is off this week. He's taking vacation, so we have a special guest host here, Samantha Compa. Welcome, Sam.
0: Hey, Camille. Great to be on here. I can't believe you're already at your 13th episode.
1: I know. I can't believe that either. I know, and we say this pretty much every episode, like, <laughs> how did we get here? But here we are. Yeah,
0: it seems like time
1: flies. So, Sam, you're our second-ever guest co-host, which is kind of cool. The first one was Anna Pippas, and um, how did you and I meet? So
0: I have long been interested in your work, and especially just in animals in general. So when I finally got called to the bar last year, I thought, you know, I want to make animals part of my practice. So I reached out, and you were kind enough to call me back, which I was super excited about. (laughs) and uh, kind of went from there and we have got to do some pretty exciting work together and now we're in Scotland, so it's kind of like a dream come true for me.
1: Yeah, so Sam and I, as, she, as you say, we're currently in Scotland, coming to you live from another country, so this is also <laughs> the first international episode of Paw and Order. Uh, but we're in Scotland because we've just been at a really cool uh, human rights conference, so human rights for people who identify as vegan. And it segues really well with your work, of course, Anne, because you practice mm-hmm. human rights full-time in the Hamilton with Ross and McBride LLP.
0: Yeah, it's a really neat way for me to kind of merge the two um, areas that I'm interested in, so human rights and animal rights. And um, I just feel super lucky to have been able to come here and talk about some of the work we're doing in Hamilton and Ontario and uh, hear about the awesome work people are doing all over here because it's really interesting. I think it will be helpful for us at home, too.
1: Yeah, so the conference that we have just finished attending is the International Vegan Rights Alliance Conference, and it was in Glasgow, Scotland, and we'll post a link to the uh, to the website so you guys can see what happened, but it was a conference focused on protecting the human rights of people who are ethical vegans, so people who choose not to use animal products because they believe it's, uh, it's wrong to hurt animals, and so this comes into play in a whole swath of areas of people's lives. So employment situations, um, access to food in public institutions like hospitals and prisons. And there's been this really amazing growing movement across the world to protect people who are in the situation. And also just to ensure that vegan food is like publicly available in public institutions. So uh, yeah, we heard from people from all over.
0: Huh? Yeah, there were uh, some great stories from England. Portugal has some amazing successes recently um we heard from a great guy from ireland who saved like 20 or maybe not 25 cows but i think it's cows were 25 years old he had like five or six cows yeah the cow sanctuary yeah awesome um yeah some great work from people in france italy scotland obviously it was really inspiring
1: yeah the the portugal story was was kind of cool because uh this guy nuno alves who runs the portuguese vegetarian association they actually got a bill passed by their national parliament, requiring that public canteens—and that mostly means like in schools and hospitals—that they have an option that's that's vegan, so that you know everyone can eat it. So he gave a presentation on how they actually accomplished that, and sort of some of the problems they've had with implementing it. Um, so you know, it's not all good news, but it's mm-hmm. mostly pretty cool news.
0: Yeah, I think it was pretty inspiring for um, some of the people too. I think uh, France was very excited about it. Their rep and. Uh... People from Italy were having some trouble there. So I think it was nice to see a pocket of kind of good news, even if it wasn't perfect.
1: Yeah. So if there's any lawyers out there listening and hoping they might get some CPD credits next yeah. year, check out this conference. Come with us next year. It's always really fascinating to meet so many people. Yeah. Uh, and so our main segment today is going to be about human rights for vegans in Canada and specifically Ontario, since you and I are both in Ontario mm-hmm. and do lots of work there. So we'll get into that a little bit later, but first, I know everyone wants to know what we've been eating in Scotland. <laughs> have we been starving as vegans, Sam? It's more like what we haven't been eating, Camille. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was your favorite so far?
0: Um, I mean, I loved the vegan Big Mac that we had, although I'm told that there's an even better one in Toronto, so I'm going to have to try that when we get there.
1: Yeah, it was good, but I don't think it really holds a candle to doomies, which is like the gold standard of vegan Big Macs. Okay. It's still good.
0: I'll give it a shot. Um, I don't know. We had some amazing, like uh, really good milkshakes, some good coutine, Um,
1: Yeah, they say Glasgow, where <laughs> the conference was, is the vegan capital of the entire UK. And I believe that.
0: Me too. There were so many options everywhere and even not just like straight up vegan restaurants, but like restaurants that were just, I don't know, for lack of a better word, normal restaurants. They had great vegan options.
1: Yeah, and they're all really clearly marked everywhere, Mm -hmm. including on products and grocery stores, because the Vegan Society, which is a really cool group based out of England, uh, they have this logo that they license out to companies that they can put on menus, they can put on products that they sell on store shelves that indicates whether something is vegan or not. So it's really easy to figure out if you can eat something, which I love, and Mm -hmm. I wish there was more of that in Canada.
0: Yeah, it took a lot of the guesswork out of eating, and it was just, it was really enjoyable, because... It was easy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this overall, just like an amazing country. and so glad to be here. Yeah. So we're in Scotland, but we're still thinking of what's in the news back in Canada. And there's actually been, as usual, just a ton of stuff going on. So where to even start? <laughs> well, okay. So one really big story, Sam, I, I know that you saw this too. Uh, in British Columbia, there was footage released on CTV, uh, Provincial News extensive footage of multiple egg farms in BC just depicting horrific stuff. There were chickens, hens who'd, who'd been, I don't know how they got outside of the mm-hmm. battery cages that they were usually kept in, but they were buried like up to their necks in just piles of feces. Uh, it was, it, they were there were hens with prolapse, which is a very painful injury. It was just sickening.
0: Yeah, it's really horrifying to see that. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be overly surprising I mean we keep having this this kind of footage or similar footage of different animals coming out and I mean it's it's absolutely horrifying and disgusting but when we use animals in this way we're bound to see this and you know it's really kind of beyond words to describe what these hens were kept in the conditions they were kept
1: in. Yeah it's just horrible and you know a couple points on this first of all our colleague Anna Pippis was featured in much of the coverage And of course, made some commentary on the state of the law and really pointed out very clearly that the egg industry is an unregulated, uninspected industry. Uh, There is no federal laws protecting animals on farms. And this is exactly what we can expect to happen when there's an industry that's essentially overseeing itself. It's self-regulating. It's taking care of itself. And without public inspection and laws, like this is exactly what we can expect to happen.
0: Yeah, it's kind of insane when you think about it, that there are no laws Regulating this, when you think about how many lives are impacted by farming, um, the idea that there, that there is no oversight by anyone except really the farmers themselves and their own industry is shocking. Uh, and I don't know that the public really knows about that. I think that people probably think, you know, oh, well, someone's looking after that or it can't be that bad, you know, behind closed doors. But the reality is what we see in these videos that come out. And uh, it's, it's really
1: quite horrifying. That's exactly it. People just don't have any clue that the government has totally let this industry regulate itself. And when mm-hmm. they figure this out, they're shocked. And let me just give you one other interesting point about this. Just an example of um, how the industry views this. There's this group called the Center for Food Integrity, which so far as I can tell, is basically just like a group that exists to promote the interests of farming <laughs> industry. It's got a very <laughs> euphemistic name, Center for Food Integrity, or should maybe <laughs> nice. call it the Center for Animal Abuse. Yeah. It released a statement and sent it around that shopped it out to a bunch of journalists. And uh, we got, in the midst of responding to this, Anna, put out some, some comments. But their statement questioned whether the footage was even real. They were saying maybe they thought it was faked and they had these experts give their views on like the few clips that they saw of the footage. And again, this is just a typical response from the industry. They always say the same things when these investigations come out. They're like, well, we're not really sure if it's real or... Oh, it's just a few bad eggs. For excuse the <laughs> terrible excuse fun. The pun, it's <laughs> yeah. the really terrible fun. <laughs> oh, and um, you know another super interesting point about this whole thing is that some of the footage of chickens being stuffed live into crates, uh, where their wings are sticking out, they're literally being thrown in. It, it's brutal stuff, and we'll post a link in the show notes if you if you want to check it out. Um, But it turns out that those workers doing that were from elite farm services, which was implicated in this undercover investigation that Mercy for Animals did last year in BC Mm -hmm. of just, again, horrific stuff um, done in the, the, the chicken catching industry. So not only is this awful to see this time around, but it's the same company that was involved in the past. And you know what? No matter how many times the industry says this, it's not just a few bad apples, (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's a more vegan one <laughs> it's not just a few bad people this is systemic in the industry and this industry cannot exist without cutting corners like this like this is the hidden price of um, 10 cent wing night this is the hidden mm-hmm. price of your cheap omelets this is the price that these birds pay for those foods
0: yeah I think that's really well put Camille. Like, just hit it on the head there I mean when we compromise animals for our own um cravings, I guess, this is what we end up with, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So boo to BC yes. firms. In other news, uh, there was a huge development, um, very surprising to a lot of people with marineland marineland's owner, John Holler, actually died a couple of weeks ago. He was 83 years old. Um, and I understand that his health had been in, in sort of a poor condition for quite some time. But and of course, condolences to to Mr. Holler's family, but this truly represents the end of an era. Uh, this was the man who founded Marineland and who was the driving force behind it for its entire 50-some year existence since, since the 60s. So it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what happens next, especially for the whales.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would hope um, this may be kind of... Un- unrealistically optimistic, but I would hope that this would be an opportunity to, you know, maybe try and find a better home for these whales. We've um, heard about some sanctuaries that are opening up in Canada and the idea that maybe these whales could be shipped out there. But certainly I would hope that they don't get sent to just another marine land type uh, organization. And I hope that, you know, this is really an opportunity for them to live a happier life than they have in marine land.
1: I, I agree. There's the Whale Sanctuary Project, which is investigating sites in Canada. There's a new sanctuary that just opened up for belugas in Iceland, mm. and a couple of uh, belugas from China are actually being being sent there. But right now, what we're hearing is just a whole bunch of rumors that maybe two belugas have already been sent to China from Marineland, and we're hearing rumors about other theme park conglomerates wanting to buy them so they can get access to those belugas. And interestingly. I didn't really fully appreciate this, Sam, until mm-hmm. I looked it up, but keeping orcas in Ontario is banned.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but there's no law that says anything about importing or exporting, sorry, exporting in particular, an orca who's already there. So Kiska at Marineland could legally be exported to another captive prison.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's really, it's frightening to think of for these animals. I mean, I think, obviously, condolences to John Holler's family. But I think that this is a time for us to say, okay, listen, I think that you know, public opinion has really spoken out about keeping animals, especially keeping whales in captivity like this. Um, why don't we make this or take this as an opportunity to kind of fix what we've done in the past and try and give these whales a better future rather than selling them to the highest bidder um, in a different country who could still keep them or a different province that could still keep them.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, notably China, which is the the country most often cited uh, because theme parks are growing over there. They have no animal welfare laws whatsoever, like mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. So I agree. I hope that Marineland sees this as an opportunity to move in a new direction. Like, to be fair, we just didn't know back in the 60s how bad it was for them. We didn't understand mm-hmm. that. And now that we know better, I think that we need to do better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I
1: agree. So another thing that's been happening in Canada, and apparently around the world, apparently the, the, just the last week has seen some of the worst weather, yes, heat waves, very. is like in history.
0: Well, even here in Scotland, it's been baking hot.
1: Yeah, everyone <laughs> that we see here is like, this is crazy. We, it's, And you know, for us, it's actually not that hot. It's like <laughs> mid-20s. <mid-twenties. laughs> but they're saying, yeah, it's never been this hot for this long in our memories or lifetimes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, Sam, can't help but think of the impact on the animals every time we experience a heat wave like this, and we know it hasn't been good.
0: Yeah, this is something you and I have been talking about quite a bit while we've been
1: here. Cause it's,
0: it's hard to think of really anything else when you think about how hot it is back home, and I keep hearing repeat, reports from people back home about how hot it is. I'm just thinking of all the animals who are caught up in, you know, working for humans, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we've seen some pretty disturbing footage of horses in Montreal still being forced to pull carriages around. Which of course is interesting because the city actually did just ban those carriages. It's not in effect yeah, yet. But... I was
0: just gonna say that, Camille. I was under the impression or I had read somewhere that they could just ban that. So when why are they still out there?
1: Yeah, I think the bylaw doesn't come into effect. Like they still have to vote on pat and pass it. But... Okay. but still, you know, it would be nice to see inspectors taking this a bit more seriously. And actually, frankly, the industry taking this a bit more seriously and being like maybe we shouldn't put these horses out here on the hot pavement when it's literally baking.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can really think, I mean, I have horses and I've been with them for, since I was like five years old probably. And I mean, they just stand there and sweat. (laughs) So I can, and that's in a field, not on concrete, not pulling a giant carriage around. So um, it really makes me sad to think of these horses who are probably just exhausted and probably suffering from, you know, versions of heat exhaustion. Yeah. Um, All for our you know ability to say oh yeah I took a horse drawn carriage around Montreal like great just walk on your own two feet oh it's probably too hot for you to do that so you're gonna sit in the back of a carriage
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly yeah people don't even want to yeah, walk around why are they making a break. horses do it <laughs> oh and then the other thing that uh well so interestingly I'll, I'll, I'll tell one story first and then the second so there was a man charged for leaving a dog in a hot car in the Chatham Kent area mm. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should charge the guy. But what about all the pigs being transported to slaughter who are suffering in those open-sided, non-climate controlled trucks, and no one's being charged for that transport?
0: Yeah, that's pretty horrifying. Um, I drive often from Milton to Hamilton or Hamilton to Milton, and there's often, I normally see a couple of trucks either going to the slaughterhouse at, uh, I guess, an Appleby in Burlington, or going from it. So there's It's really upsetting, and um, the last few days that I was here before I came to Scotland, actually, it was really hot already without this crazy heat weave that we've all been going through. And you still just see tons and tons of pigs crammed into these friggin' metal trucks, Um, and it's just horrifying. Um, You really can't, I mean, just when I think about it, how hot they've got to be in there. Um, So I called actually the CFIA. I guess, I don't, I don't know what day it was, but I called them just to say, who do I talk to about my concerns with this? And their response to me was, we actually only deal with exporting and importing transportation. And I said, I don't think that's actually true. Um, I'm fairly certain that you deal with just transportation in general of animals. And no, 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 uh, you, you know, you're really going to have to call your provincial government on this. So I said, okay, I don't know that that's accurate, but I'll call and see what they say too. So I ended up calling the Ontario SPCA. And again, they just told me to call my provincial government.
1: Um, Wow, so they're just basically all passing the buck.
0: Yeah, and it was really, I mean, the OSPCA especially
1: really frustrated me. I know I've
0: talked about this kind of at length with you, but I mean, I would think that if they got a call that there were a bunch of dogs stuck in a car, they would be there in an instant, at least I hope they would be. And I struggled to see the difference between that and a bunch of pigs being transported to slaughter. I mean, just. The fact that they are going to kind of the end of their life doesn't change the fact that they're in a lot of suffering i would imagine on these trucks and i think you know it it speaks to a huge problem when no one is willing to take responsibility to even go and check up on these animals
1: yeah it's really disturbing it's a classic sort of buck passing that we see Mm -hmm. and part of this problem We've spoken about this on the podcast before with Peter, but there's so many different agencies in charge of like multiple pieces that overlap in some ways of protecting animals and their welfare, that it's really easy for them to pass the buck, especially in difficult situations. Like, you know, a a dog in a car, no one thinks of that as difficult because you're not threatening an industry. You're not threatening anyone's profits. Mm -hmm. It's an animal that society universally loves, but when it comes to pigs who are making money for a bunch of people, It's much more difficult to do the right thing. So if you're out there and you're listening and it's still hot out or any day where it's hot in the future and you see animals being transported and you think that they're in distress or suffering, I encourage you to report it to the CFIA and to the local SPCA or Humane Society Mm -hmm. and to the police. Uh, Just report it to as many places as you can because if they don't get these reports, they're never gonna start doing anything. Um, So, you know, longer term strategy getting these laws enforced, but we can all play a role right now.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to keep raising the alarm on these issues.
1: Yeah. So on to our main segment today, which is human rights for vegans in Canada. Okay, so if you're a listener and you're not vegan, and I know, I don't know how many of you are vegan or not. I actually have no idea. (laughs) I hope a lot of non-vegans are listening because I would like to spread the word about animal law pretty far. So if, if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm not vegan, this doesn't apply to me, um, don't tune out because this is actually a fascinating sort of human rights type topic. And theoretically, it's just like intriguing how we protect people and their beliefs. Um, okay, so Sam, the basics of human rights law, in Antira, you're a human rights uh, lawyer, so you know this stuff quite well, but people are protected based on um, a whole lot of things, right?
0: Yeah, so there's a number of Uh, what we call human rights grounds that you can be protected on. So um, you can't be discriminated or harassed in, I believe it's five social areas. So that's employment, accommodation, contract, services, and then membership in a vocational association, which typically we see as union membership. So those are the areas you're discriminated, or sorry, you're protected from discrimination. Uh, You're not discriminated in those areas. Um, So it's not just kind of a broad right to be free from discrimination so if i'm walking down the street and i say something discriminatory to camille and we're not in any of those five areas she's not going to be able to come to the human rights tribunal and complain about me
1: yeah so it's not like you can't insult somebody based on their race like in general which unfortunately well you can still do that it doesn't impact the law that's just sort of the way it is
0: right so in those five areas you're protected um from like from personal, from discrimination based on personal characteristics. So the easiest, uh, easiest examples would be kind of uh, race, disability, uh, sex, including pregnancy. There's creed, which we're going to talk about, obviously. Um, What else am I looking for here? Sexual orientation. There's a a fairly lengthy list. um, And, you know, If you're, say, at work and someone is either discriminating against you directly, so for example, saying, you know, oh, you can't do that because you have X disability, or not accommodating you so that you can do your job uh, in, in a way that kind of accommodates your disability, then you can come to the tribunal and say, hey, you know, my employer isn't doing this or my service provider isn't doing this, or the person who's in charge of my housing isn't making my home accessible for me. So, that's kind of what the tribunal and the human rights code covers. Um, like I say, unfortunately, it's kind of uh, narrow in the areas that it covers and the grounds that it covers. But uh, if you can get into it, then it's a, it can be an accessible way for you to kind of get a remedy for
1: uh, any discrimination that you experience. So, I first got interested in this whole area in, I think, the summer of um, 2011 uh, when I was a summer student with Animal Justice. And we heard that the Human Rights Commission, of Ontario, which is like basically a policy setting body. It doesn't make laws, but it makes policies about all these protected grounds of discrimination. And it tries to provide guidance to employers and service providers and also individuals so they can know like what their rights are if they're an individual and if they're an entity, how to respect other people's rights and and do things in a way that respect them. So um, animal justice, was involved in a case in 2010, I believe, where there was a veterinary student at the Ontario Vet College. Her name was Dr. Anna Yushchenko, and um, she was studying. She was asked to do a number of things over the course of her studies to become a vet. And one of those things was to perform a routine spay or neuter operation on a dog, a beagle named Rainbow actually, and after she did that, she was told by her, uh, by the authorities in the school that she had to kill Rainbow. She had to, quote unquote, euthanize Rainbow, which I don't like that word because I don't think there's anything kind about killing a healthy dog who doesn't need to die. But Dr. Yushenko, she considered herself an ethical vegan, and she went to vet school because she wanted to help animals. So being asked to kill an animal for no reason whatsoever was just totally offensive to her, and she refused to do it. So the school actually uh, got quite upset about this and they said no you have to if you don't kill rainbow we're not going to let you graduate from the program so it became a big news story we got involved Um, our argument at the time was that her beliefs as somebody who considers herself an ethical vegan and refuses to participate in activities that harm animals is protected under this whole heading of creed in ontario human rights law so the word creed is interesting sam because It does. So the Human Rights Act, it says creed. It doesn't say creed and religion, which a lot of people sometimes think that creed and religion are maybe the same or maybe slightly different. Um, Ontario is actually the only province that says just creed. Um, Other places usually say religion exclusively or creed and religion or like religious creed. There's a whole bunch of different ways they characterize it. But we thought in Ontario that since it just said creed, that means something broader than just religious beliefs that are protected. It also means ethical beliefs that people are entitled to have protected.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that Ontario has left it open to be much broader than just religion. Um, It leaves it open, arguably anyway, and certainly that's what you guys argued, uh, to be more open to kind of conscientious conscientious beliefs um, and beliefs that aren't tied to any organized religion, which I think is really important for Ontarians because there are tons of people who have you know sincerely held beliefs about certain things and they're not necessarily tied to an organized religion but they are very important to their sense of identity and their community and their you know social circles and when some when a belief governs people that strongly you know I I think it is deserving of protection.
1: Yeah. So interestingly, the Human Rights Commission decided it would revise its policy based on creed, which again, it's not the law, but it's pretty influential. And their last policy said explicitly that creed does not include anything that's not religion, but the new policy uh, was potentially going to be different. So we got involved in that process. I actually wrote a paper about this in law school and argued that because people are increasingly becoming non-religious and holding beliefs in things for ethical reasons rather than religious ones. Um, this was a trend that we have to catch up to. And in particular, there's no principled reason not to extend protections to people like vegans who believe really strongly for like very sound and logical reasons that they don't want to harm animals or participate in their exploitation. So um, I presented to the Human Rights Commission. Uh, some other people did too. And they did a pretty extensive like public participation component. They had a survey. They asked people what they thought about these issues and they used ethical vegans as an example throughout. And at the end, they issued a consultation report where they mentioned ethical vegans as a potential group um, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And they finally issued the, uh, the revised policy in December 2015 and we won. There was, there was a, a line in there that said that we could include ethical beliefs, secular beliefs that uh, nonetheless provide like a really important sort of moral guidance for people.
0: Yeah, I think that was awesome work by you guys, and it was actually interesting when I was doing some research to prep for a presentation in Scotland, Camille's name just kept coming up as kind of the driving force behind this, so it was uh, it was amazing work by her.
1: Well, it was pretty cool, and when we announced that this had happened, like the media hadn't really noticed anything at first, but mm-hmm. we put out a press release, and then things just kind of went wild. <laughs> <laughs> there were headlines about how vegans claim they're protected, vegans claim they're a creed, and, some of the tone was actually a little bit negative, which yeah, is too bad.
0: Some people weren't thrilled with it, but.
1: No, but but it is important because I get emails and phone calls all the time from people, often activists, but sometimes people who are just sort of quietly vegetarian or vegan, who, um, you know, like here's an example. A woman who worked at an eating disorder clinic and she was a nurse and she was told by the clinic that she couldn't um, be vegan because at work, they're supposed to uh, eat with the patients to model healthy eating patterns, and veganism is, so they said, a restrictive, unhealthy dietary pattern. And she's like, well, no, you know, I'm, I'm very healthy. I've got a great relationship with food, and I eat vegan because I care about animals. And they're like, no, can't do that. Um, you know, cases, Sam, where children who are sent to a daycare or like a publicly funded daycare or, um, are told that they can't bring their own vegan food in nor can they be served a vegan meal at the daycare.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would be interested to know, uh, first of all, what the basis of that decision is
1: not to bring their own vegan food in. I'm not sure what they would like I think it's from. like allergy concerns, like peanuts or things that kids right. are allergic to, but I still. I
0: feel like that's something that could probably be accommodated. Um, so even just hearing, so both of those options, another thing regarding human rights that's important to know about is that Uh, So in the example with the woman who's working at the eating disorder clinic, you would have discrimination there, basically. So to establish discrimination, what you need is um, a social area like I talked about and a ground like I talked about. So if we're assuming that creed, um, sorry, if we're assuming that ethical veganism falls into creed, then you've got those two things, which is a good starting point, a crucial starting point, really. And then you need to prove, in order to prove discrimination, three things. So you need to prove that you identify with creed and I'm going to talk about kind of the ways that the commission has set out potentially proving that you identify with creed. After that, you need to show that you have uh, experienced an adverse effect. And so with the eating disorder example, the adverse effect would be saying, you know, you can't really do your job anymore, because you're a vegan. So there you have a direct link. And that brings you to the third thing that you have to prove for discrimination, which is that link. Um, now, once you have that, the next thing to do would be to say, okay, employer, I mean, I think you can accommodate me, though. I um, hey, what, what does accommodation mean? So, accommodation in Ontario is accommodation to the point of undue hardship. So, that means that employers, service providers, um, housing providers need to work with the individual to find a way to literally accommodate their um, identified ground. So, in the case of this woman working in the eating disorder clinic, that would likely be, you know... First of all, there's a procedural and a substantive duty to accommodate. So what I imagine would happen in that case, if the employer was following their obligations, is they would say, okay, we have these conceptions that veganism is unhealthy and a restrictive diet. In order to determine whether or not we can make this relationship work, we need to actually look into whether or not that's true.
1: Well, that might be a good starting point.
0: (laughs) So that's like step one in your procedural accommodation, okay? Um, and then even if they found that it was restrictive or, you know, was unhealthy, which I think that if they actually did the research, they probably wouldn't, but, you know, they would still need to go, uh, if I was advising them, I'd say you still need to go a step further and see if there's any way you can continue to accommodate this woman in her existing job. So whether it's by, and I'm sure maybe some employer counsel would listen to me here and say, okay, you're going too far, but I don't think so. Um, you know, say Even if she stays in this job, is there a way that we can kind of create working knowledge around her diet or around her beliefs and why she's eating the way she is in a way that we can still fulfill the purposes of our program, but still have her in here? And if that still wasn't an option, then you would work to find, you know, maybe another spot that she could work if they really felt that they could not accommodate her to the point of undue hardship. Now, having said that, undue hardship is an extremely, extremely high test in Ontario. There are very few cases that actually need it. Oh. Um, which we've done some research on that in the past. And there were, I'm not even going to say the number of cases because I'll probably get it wrong at this point, but it's very few cases hit the mark. And so what you have to show in order to prove undue hardship is that it would cause you undue hardship or in terms of cost, in terms of health and safety, or in terms of outside sources of funding. So it's really a high test in order to get to that point. Um, and you, Getting to that point is in the second part, which I mentioned, which is the substantive accommodation. So first, you look at how you can accommodate. If you decide you can't, then you say, "I can't," and you know that's your procedural obligation done. And then you know the individual may go to the tribunal and say they didn't accommodate me, and then the tribunal will decide, okay, did you meet your procedural um, obligations? Maybe, maybe not. But I still find that you actually could have accommodated this person, and that gets you to your substantive issues. Um, So, I mean, in the cases that you've described, I have a hard time seeing how, you know, definitely the procedural issue in that uh, eating disorder clinic case. I don't see how they could have really looked into that based on what you and I have talked about. And then substantively, again, I I have a hard time seeing how they could really get around it given the three part uh, test for undue hardship Mm. or the three factors, I guess I should say, for undue hardship. And then especially for the kid trying to bring his own vegan food, I have a hard time seeing how that would get anywhere close to uh, undue hardship for any organization. Yeah, that
1: makes no sense. Like telling children they can't, they won't be served vegan food in a daycare and they can't bring their own. Like, And interestingly, the daycare in this situation, they were perfectly happy to provide food for anyone who had a religious requirement (laughs) for certain diets uh, or anyone who had allergies. They just didn't think that vegans were important enough to be accommodated.
0: Yeah, and I've had uh, clients say to me that they've actually had employers explicitly say that to them. So they will ask for, you know, accommodation in the form of vegan food, and be told no. You know, we'll make we'll make accommodations for religion and allergies, but you know, preferences no.
1: Yeah, it's it's just really backwards, and I, I think there's just not a lot of information out there at this point, mm-hmm. and employers haven't really read up on this sort of new and emerging area of law, so. So it's good for us and you know if anyone is listening and sort of identifies with these situations and feels that they've faced discrimination in the workplace before or in services or accommodation or another area it is important to get some advice on this from a lawyer and to contact that employer or whatever other entity and just let them know about their obligations because Sam I'm sure you find this mm-hmm. oftentimes these issues can be resolved once employers understand what their obligations actually are.
0: Absolutely. I've had a couple of people call me with these issues, um, not even just veganism, but sometimes activists um, who say, you know, I'm getting into trouble at work or, you know, my employer isn't so thrilled with my activities. And I find often that as soon as we send the letter, if we can get, often if we can get to the employer or the um, service provider uh, before it becomes kind of a, you know, termination issue or punishment issue, then we're able to resolve it before anything really even happens oftentimes all you need is a letter saying, listen, I believe that this is my, uh, or sorry, I I ascribe to ethical veganism. I believe it is a creed. I believe you have an obligation
1: to accommodate
0: me. Let's work together to make this work. And, you know, some employers are bad, but a lot of employers, they just don't know.
1: They want to do the right thing. They want to do the
0: right thing. They don't want to get sued. Um, So oftentimes you just send a, you know, kind of carefully worded letter and they will back off and actually work with you.
1: Well, cool. so um one thing I guess we should go over is is how exactly like how does something get determined to be a creed? I know that there's factors that the human rights tribunal is supposed to look at in deciding whether some sort of belief qualifies as an actual creed. So what are those?
0: Yeah, so the commission put out five factors and again I think I can't remember if we mentioned this or we just talked about it so much. So apologies to everyone if I'm repeating myself here. Um but the commission Policy with respect to um, ethical veganism hasn't been—it's not law, so we're still waiting for a case to go to the tribunal. Um, but these factors that I'm going to list out are likely factors that the tribunal will look at.
1: Yeah. So this is what the commission says, as you say, Sam. It's policy, and the actual law that um, once it's accepted, the creed is, is uh, includes ethical veganism. That would have to be a tribunal case that decides that. So we're still waiting that. But for now, there's five things that might be influential.
0: Yeah, so the commission has said that when you're looking at determining whether a belief is a creed, you should look to see first whether it is sincerely, freely, and deeply held. Uh, Second, whether it's integrally linked to a person's identity, fulfillment, and self-definition. Third, whether it is a particular and comprehensive overarching system that governs one's conduct and practices. Fourth, whether it addresses ultimate questions of human existence, including ideas about life, purpose, um, and different orders of existence. And then fifth, whether the person uh, has some connection to an organization or community that professes the shared system of belief. So those are kind of the five factors that I think the tribunal will look at, because the commission has said that those are important factors to consider. Um, and looking at them, I mean, I think that ethical veganism would fall into that. And I would kind of be surprised if given the law that we already have, you know, under the charter um, and some of the international cases that we heard about at this conference, actually, I would be surprised if the tribunal said that ethical veganism was not a creed.
1: No. So if you think about vegans and particularly activists, too. I mean, obviously, they have a sincerely held belief because they don't uh, think it's appropriate to use animals in any way. Uh, for many of them and most of them, it's inter- really linked to their identity and their their fulfillment. You know, obviously, it's a, a comprehensive belief system that governs you know virtually every aspect of an ethical vegan's conduct, from what they eat to products they buy that may or may not be tested on animals. <laughs> Um, it, of course, addresses ultimate questions about why humans are here. Some people would say that we're, our, our purpose here is to mitigate or avoid suffering. And there's a huge connection to um, a community of like-minded people. Um, you know, many vegans and activists get together all the time for, for potlucks and for other community events. So, yeah, I agree. I don't think that there would be too much of a barrier to uh, the right case and the right person meeting all of those criteria. But as you mentioned, we're still just sort of waiting for the right um, tribunal case to come along to actually go to the tribunal and get a ruling on this. And let's just say that there is potentially some exciting stuff coming up. That's all we can say for now.
0: Yeah, we'll leave it at that. But we've got some exciting things coming, hopefully.
1: And if you're listening and you feel that you uh, are somebody who's faced discrimination, by all means, get in touch. You can find contact information on the Animal Justice website. And we do try to uh, refer people for advice in this area if, if you need it, because we think it's a really important thing to make sure that people can practice um, and live their lives in accordance with their beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, Sam, a second ago, you mentioned the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and we've been talking right now about exclusively provincial law. And I should know, we were just talking about Ontario. Other provinces may have similar protections based on different things in, in laws. So if you live in another province and you're listening, um, don't feel like the situation is hopeless because there, there might be something in your province. Um, but there's also the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which applies federally.
0: Yeah. So the charter applies to government action in Canada and um, section 2A provides freedom of religion and conscience. And there was a case in was it 2002 or 2001. Yeah, Early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. Um, Called Maurice, and he was actually a very fascinating person. Um, he was in prison, and he originally was requesting a vegetarian diet for religious reasons.
1: He was a Hare Krishna ad- adherent at the time, mm-hmm.
0: and then he kind of gave up that faith, but said, "I still, uh, I still want a vegetarian meal. It's still very important to me um, to be vegetarian." And the prison fought him on it, and basically said, "You know." No, now that you're no longer eating this way for religious reasons you can you know deal with the meat and not get your vegetarian meal so this guy self-represented um repeatedly kind of grieved this issue to the uh to the prison and then he worked his way up to the federal court of
1: appeal which is no easy feat for a self-represented person let alone somebody who's in custody
0: yeah i mean i i'm really just impressed with his kind of tenacity yeah (laughs) um but anyways, so he works his way up to the federal court of appeal, and the federal court of appeal agreed with him and said, "Yeah, your uh, your freedom of conscience is engaged by this." They didn't do too much of an analysis, which is um, kind of unfortunate, but we're left with the decision which we're happy with, which is that you know vegetarianism and the idea that he should be entitled to a vegetarian meal in prison um, was adopted by the court. So that's actually one of the main cases really on that area.
1: Yeah, it really is the leading case on freedom of conscience right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's just an underdeveloped area of of the law. And it happens to be uh, an area where veganism or vegetarianism at least has been recognized as as uh, existing within that um, that section. So that's cool. So that would apply Sam to situations like hospitals that aren't providing appropriate food and we hear that all the time that that hospitals are not providing vegan food and sometimes don't even have vegan versions of things available like formula
0: Yeah, that was an example you were telling me about
1: recently. It actually came up a couple of times at the conference, too, that people in other countries have faced this issue where apparently there just might not be enough vegan formula brands out there. So if somebody can't eat following an operation and and needs to drink their meals, you would give them formula. And it, it might just be one of those areas where the product isn't there yet. So that's in the area. Uh, hospital food, for sure. Obviously prison food, but things like school lunch programs as well, if they exist. I know that's not really a huge thing in Canada like it is in European mm-hmm. countries, but lots of stuff would be covered by the Charter.
0: Yeah, any government action really would be, gov- well, any government action is covered by the Charter. So um, it leaves kind of a wide open way for people to challenge government action on this basis.
1: Yeah, so, so bottom line is that there's lots of protections for people who face discrimination because they're vegan in the employment, service, uh, government context. Uh, so if you feel like you're facing discrimination, by all means, get in touch. You can email us on the website, and we'd love to hear from you and try to help you if we can. Heroes and Zeros. Okay, so we're on to what Peter would be sad if I didn't say, is everybody's <laughs> favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. What? Okay, so Sam, we have a pretty cool hero this month.
0: Yeah, it's something that um, I
1: think, well, obviously
0: as animal lovers, we were both very excited to see. So Banff is banning noisy fireworks, um, which I think anyone with dogs or cats or horses or anyone who hangs out with animals would know is a great thing. Um, I know growing up with dogs and horses, they both absolutely hated any time that there were fireworks and often ended up with some very upset stomachs. and. just very stressed out animals for no real reason. So I'm super excited about that.
1: Yeah. Good for BAMF. And we see the effects on animals that we live with, like cats or dogs or horses. We don't see the effect on wild animals. Mm-hmm. And that was what BAMP specifically cited. They said like, look, these animals are you know, potentially dropping from the sky on mass. Sometimes um, horses sometimes have heart attacks, uh, There's just like all kinds of effects on wild animals that we we can't even see that are really negative and all for no particular reason, because you can easily have fireworks that don't make that huge bang. They just blow up in the sky and look nice, but Mm -hmm. they don't scare anyone. Um, Also interestingly, this Globe and Mail piece, which we'll post in the show notes, said that shelters in the United States get a huge number, a huge influx of of runaway dogs Mm -hmm. after July 4th because of the fireworks. They're just like inundated with all these dogs who've been spooked and run off. Mm
0: So, yay, BAMP. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember we had a dog that ran away from uh, my friend's farm. for like He ran for miles and miles, and we ended up catching him, I think, in the next town. But oh. it's just so awful, and we're just lucky he didn't get hit by a car.
1: Yeah, they're just so terrified for no good reason. Mm-hmm. I know my cats just like hide under the bed every time fireworks go yeah. off. I'm in Ottawa, and, and pretty oh, close yeah. to where they go. So it's tragic. So, good job, BAMP. Yeah. I hope that we see more places following Sue. Lots of places have done this already. Um, They're not the first by any means, but this is potentially a good activism project for those of you who are thinking of doing something locally is get your uh, town to ma- pass a, a municipal bylaw saying uh, noise-free fireworks. Yeah, that's a great idea. And our zero this month, <laughs> or this week, whatever, this episode, our zero was a pretty easy choice. <laughs> and I don't know if he's actually been a zero before, it's possible, but Senator Don Plett is our zero. <laughs> So why is here zero? Let me explain. Yeah, there's been a lot going on the last few weeks. Uh, Parliament just rose for the summer, and we were really pushing for three bills in the Senate to finally get voted on by the Senate and get passed out of there. So the three bills are S two o three, which is the whale and dolphin bill, and we've talked about that extensively on the show before. But essentially, it would ban keeping whales and dolphins in captivity right across the country. It would also ban imports and exports, which becomes particularly mm. important now that Marine Land is potentially going to start shipping off its whales.
0: Very important now.
1: So that was one bill. The second bill was S two fourteen, the Cruelty Free Cosmetics Act, which would ban cosmetic testing on animals, which again very important, uh, and that was put forward by a conservative senator. And the third bill was S two thirty eight, which would ban shark fin uh, imports and shark finning in Canada. So really important bills. It's the only three bills that we've got going in Parliament right now that are actually being debated on. And what's happened is that one man, Senator Don Platt, has been holding up these bills, especially the cosmetics and whale bills, for a very long time. So those those bills were both introduced in December of 2015. So here we are, 30 months later, and they haven't gotten out of the Senate yet. Uh, that's a really long time if you don't know anything about parliamentary procedures, Sam. It's like it
0: excruciatingly long time it sounds like a very long time to wait
1: <laughs> yeah and so what's been going on is he's just delaying it every step of the way everything he can do bringing ridiculous procedural motions like stalling boats making boats go on for hours and hours he's determined especially to kill the whale in dolphinville why is that Camille? he just for whatever reason loves Marineland, loves the vancouver aquarium thinks these are great facilities and just has it out for these bills. Okay. So really frustrating. Uh, so what ends up happening is we held a press conference in, um, in parliament with uh, colleagues at HSI Canada, as well as MPs from all four parties who were saying to the Senate, come on, let's just get these bills voted on. We're not even telling you which way to vote, but just like vote on them, please, so we can do our job you in the House going. of Commons. <laughs> so we had Elizabeth May from the Greens, Finn Donnelly from the NDP, We had uh, Michelle Rempel from the Conservatives and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith from the Liberals. And they all came there with a message, just please vote on these bills. So, Sam, what ended up happening is the cosmetics bill did get voted on and it did pass. That's awesome. So, yay for that. Yeah, that's
0: great. Good job, guys.
1: And unfortunately, the Whale and Dolphin Bill and the shark fin Bill are still sitting there languishing.
0: (laughs) For how many more months?
1: Yeah, who knows? We've got the summer break now. So yeah. Parliament doesn't even come back until mid-September. So it's going to be like October at the earliest, probably, by the time these two get voted on. And what his strategy is, is just to delay long enough that there's not enough time to finish passing the bill before the next election, which is mm-hmm. October 2019. So really tragic. Um, if you want to do something about this, you know, it's, it's tough because he's a senator and he's sort of invulnerable to pressure. But you could contact conservative leader Andrew Scheer and tell him you don't like these strategies and these tactics and you think it's undemocratic and people should just be allowed to vote on bills.
0: Yeah. Camille, How is it that just one person is able to hold this up so much?
1: You know, that actually is a question that a lot of people have been asking. I did an interview on The Current about this and actually Don Plett was on after me. I'll, I'll post it. <laughs> you guys can listen. Um, I didn't think he was very good, but uh yeah, people are wondering, and it has to do with the Senate's really outdated rules that let somebody essentially filibuster for a really long time. Uh, the House of Lords in the UK has actually changed their rules to make sure this doesn't happen, mm-hmm. so that you can only, like, you know, just do your job and not do procedural delays forever and ever. Sounds like a good approach to it,
0: considering what we're dealing with right now.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah. So, Dawn is are zero. Probably not the last time either. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, Sam, for being here as a guest host. Thanks so much, Camille. That was so much fun. And I really appreciate you asking me to uh,
0: to join in and I'd love to come back. It was so much fun.
1: Well, I think we may have uh, an update at some point on some of the cases we're hinting at. So let's stay in touch. Yeah. That'd be awesome.
0: we'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in please a reminder you can subscribe to the Paw & Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher Google Play or your favorite podcatcher and please please leave us a rating and a review which helps us reach more people
1: you can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it and we always welcome donations to Animal Justice which makes Paw & Order possible
0: you can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com.
1: And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Org.